A um, couple things happening. First off, uh, planting roots uh, is this uh, journey that Element went on uh, about a year and a half ago. And it was a way to get us all on the same page about moving forward to have a home that we can call our own. And part of that is we, we've looked around for years for a place to us to permanently settle, and there, we haven't been able to find a place. So in the end, we bought this field that's out here, and we are now in the midst of moving forward to build a permanent structure on that so we can actually have a home to reach out in our community and do a bunch of stuff with. So Plenty Roots was the journey of the vision behind that and then to ask people to get on board if you would like to to be a part of that. So at the end of this month and the first three weeks of next month, we're doing what's called a Planting Roots Remix, not necessarily in the in the messages on Sunday morning, but uh, in your sermon notes, in your gospel communities. Uh, hopefully, if you're not in one, maybe just with your family and friends, you will see on the left-hand side, side of the sermon notes at the end of the month, you'll start to get a, watch this video, here's some questions to walk through, uh, we're going to hand out some information about it so we can all on the, be on the same page of kind of coming back and getting on the same page of planting roots, because we are hoping somewhere within that four-week remix to actually break ground. Get some excitement going, and even if not, Pete says we're going to break ground anyway, and not tell the city. <laughs> No, it'll be, that dude, they don't work on the weekend, it's the city. We can build a whole thing on weekends without permits, they never even know, they're like, where'd that building come from? If you work for the city, we wouldn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Do you believe me? (laughs) So, uh, be be excited, it's going to be pretty cool, getting us all back on the same page again, so be looking forward to that. Uh, one other thing is, uh, yesterday I, I had a really nice lady at Element call me, and she has a friend who is single and in, ended up having to leave the home that she is in, and she's moving somewhere else. And so I asked for a service for a couple guys who would be willing to go and help her move some furniture today. She's moved a lot of the smaller stuff, and now it's just some of the bigger stuff that we need you manly men to help with. So dudes, like you... So I got uh, two people last service. How many people do we need? I got two last service. Six? So we need, really? Is that including or not including your husband next year? She's got to be out by 3 o'clock today. So uh, she, doesn't go, she doesn't go here, but we want to be a people who, who love and minister to and welcome people in our community. So if you would be willing to do that, this is Mark. Raise your hand. He hates being pointed out. That's Mark in the back. Uh, talk to Chris or Mark and let them know after service if you'd be willing to spend a, like an hour and a half or so helping move the last little bit. Probably even better if you have a truck. But if not, they'll still use your guns to help out and get, get things done. But after, I'll give you the two phone numbers I got from first. And so we need like four of you guys to just help out. Be like an hour and a half. You can do it. You'll be okay. You're not probably not like me. You probably don't break your fingers when you're moving something, so you'll probably be fine. All right? Don't forget. I know by the end of the service, because it's, it's going to be so amazing, this message, that you're going to totally forget. Don't forget, okay? That is a joke, by the way. Uh, not that you won't forget, but the message is amazing. That's a joke. So if you are newer to Element, uh, welcome. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. Look like this. On the inside, you get some notes and questions to go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion, and click on more, and then events in version. you'll get sermon notes, questions, verses, announcements, and all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I want you to stand with me for a reading of God's Word. This is Acts chapter 9, verse 26. 
And it says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be those who welcome others as we understand our own selves being welcomed in by you. That we would see the great goodness of who you are in calling us home. And that would in turn change our lives and change how we live. So we'd be people who really reflect who you are by how we interact with others around us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is Acts week 27 of about 36. And I got to tell you, when I started writing today's message, I got a little excited because we were getting close to the end and I could see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I was, sometimes when you're in the middle of like a longer series, like you're just in the middle of it and you're trudging through going, oh, I hope this is still connecting with people and making things work. And then like this week I was like, man, I got just like, you know, like six or seven of these left. Oh my, I'm almost, and so I got really, you probably don't care, but I was, I was really excited. I can honestly tell you, anything we teach at Element, there are things I, I've mapped out, I've prayed about it and start laying things out. Like you could ask me what we're going to be looking at in a year and a half from now, I could tell you. And I can tell you what verse, I haven't written it, but I can tell you what verses we're going to be looking at and that kind of stuff. So if you ever want to know, I can do that. Something to look forward to. No, no, I, I, just, I just have these nightmares where I wake up in the middle of the night, and it's like, what am I going to talk about today? I don't know. Uh, better wrap my message. I, I don't want to be that guy. Whatever, I, honestly, I, I feel like God has given me a responsibility with you guys to make sure that I give you the best that I can give you every single time that we get together because, you know, we study these in our gospel communities, and I want us corporately to be on the same page moving forward and learning. I didn't even say that last service, and that was my practice service, so, you know, hey. So when I say Acts, I mean the first half of the book of Acts. We're going to go in Acts up until where it switches from Peter, focusing on Peter, to the Apostle Paul. And I know chapter 9 has really been all about the Apostle Paul, but it's really differently than the rest of Acts looks at him. Acts 9 is about helping the church and us understand the far-reaching, welcoming hands of God. And we ask this a lot at Element, not just so you could regurgitate it, but so you'd understand it. We say, what is the gospel? Now, the word gospel simply defines as good news. The word gospel means good news. It's the good news of God's rescue of us, his redemption of us in the person of Jesus, that he can make everything in our lives new again. And that's the message the original church was supposed to proclaim. Acts 1.8, he says, you will be my witnesses and I will give you power. Why do you get power? Why are you the witnesses? To go out and proclaim this message of the good news of Jesus. Now, the good news is also the idea that we were all lost, we're on our own, we're doing our own thing, and God sought us and rescued us in the midst of that. Too many times in our lives, we run around like pushing God away and giving ourselves the thumbs up to all of our crazy, dumb ideas like, that God, he's so mean, always wants to take away all of my fun, I'm not going to listen to him at all, I'm going to do what I want, and then one day you hurt yourself or you catch some disease and you go, dear God, I'm so sorry, and God's like, I still love you anyway. And, and this is the idea that even in the midst of our running away, Jesus never leaves us there. He constantly chases us down. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means while you listen to 80s metal and boy bands and country music, Jesus still died for you. And while you clicked on those websites you weren't supposed to click on, Jesus still died for you. And while you treated your wife like crap because she can't read your mind, Jesus still died died for you. And while you secretly wished your husband understood you better, so you nag and you manipulate him, Christ still died for you. And while that person from that religion you don't understand strapped a bomb to 
wounded themselves and killed themselves and other people. Jesus still died for the sin of people. All the people that frustrate you and make you question why Christ died for us at our worst. And in welcoming us into his family, we are called to go out and welcome others as well. Second Corinthians tells us that we are ambassadors of this reconciliation, that God is reconciling the world to himself. And we are called to welcome as Jesus welcomed us. But we don't always do that. And the early church didn't always do that very well either. And it seems much of the book of Acts is trying to remind us of exactly who God is and exactly what God has been doing, that God has been welcoming everyone. Over and over and over, the text shows you how God saved people who no one else thought could be saved. He welcomes in people who no one else thought could ever be welcomed in. And that's what we're going to spend the most of our time looking at this morning, a little bit of background. We're not even going to get to Acts 9, our verses, till the very, very end. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. That's where we're going to start. We're going to look at eight different people or different groups of people, of people that God welcomed and other people said, well, you know, they can't really do that, but God welcomes them in anyway. And we're going to start with the disciples. How does the book of Acts start? Well, it starts with Jesus, but also with these disciples and who they are. So we're going to start there. You know who the disciples were? We think, oh, they're amazing, the spiritual giants. The disciples were the rejects. That's who the disciples were. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 18, says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, this Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's actually a play on words. Jesus is being funny. And you guys don't get it, but it's okay. I, okay. Verse 20, Immediately they left their nets and followed him. It's like, Fishers of men! And the guys in the boat are like, Yeah. Rabbi, keep your day job. Yeah, whatever. So, we constantly see in the scriptures this refrain, follow me, follow me. And people do something amazing. They actually follow him. Peter will put down his livelihood and leaves it to follow this rabbi, Jesus. I mean, imagine Jesus showed up to you at your work and said, follow me. Your response would be like, okay, in an hour when I get a moment, I'll call you back. Right? As other people would be like, quit my job, sweet, done. But, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is a completely different culture. Now, the Israelites were people who knew the scriptures. They all had some instructions in the scriptures and memorizing the scriptures. At age six, most Jewish kids would go to school for the very first time to their local synagogue taught by their rabbi. What they would learn is Torah. The first level of education of this is called Betzefer. It means house of the book. This lasted from six to ten years old. And what book would they learn? The Torah. The first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. By the time kids were ten years old, they would generally have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy memorized. I know, I know. I can't even remember what I'm supposed to pick up at the store. I, got to, I told Chris Hagel to remind me about this announcement because I'd forget what you just talked to me yesterday about it. Now, a lot of times you see this when Jesus teaches in the New Testament. He seems like everybody knows exactly what he's talking about. He quotes a verse or a phrase. And that's because everybody does know what he's talking about when he refers to the Torah. See it in Matthew 5, 21, 27, 33, 38, John 8. He says, you've heard that it was said because they had heard it was said because they memorized it. If you lived during that time, you didn't have a Bible of your own. The printing press isn't invented for another 1,400 years, there's a good chance you would only see the scriptures once a week when they're brought out of the Torah ark and they are read publicly to people. 
So memorization is important because God tells his people, meditate on my word, think about my words. Well, how would you do that if you didn't know them? So you had to know them. Today, we're so familiar with, like, most of us have like 20 Bibles sitting around our houses somewhere. If you go on vacation, there's a Gideon one shoved in the nightstand. And, and there's so many, we don't even think about opening up and memorizing and reading anymore. We need to memorize the scriptures so we can think about it throughout our daily lives. So by age 10, you'd have a, some kids, and they're going to show natural ability at this. I know you'd be like me and be like, yeah, I'll get a different job because I can't memorize anything. But students with a lot of great ability, they went on to the next level of education called Bet Talmud, which is House of Learning. This lasted until you're about 14 or 15 years old, and you would memorize the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. Genesis to Malachi, memorized by like age 15. Top students, right? We'd be like... Yeah, I, I can't do that. So what would happen to the kids who didn't make it, like you and me, is they would go off and continue their education, but they would learn a family trade. So if your family made sandals, you would learn how to make sandals. If they were vintners, you'd learn how to make wine. If you were a farmer, you'd learn how to farm, and, or you'd be a fisherman if your family fished, like Peter's family. You would apprentice with your parents or your extended family, and you would learn the family trade. You would get a real job, as people like to say to pastors. Okay. So at 15, only the best of the best would still be studying. Again, most students are learning the family trade. They're, they have real jobs. Uh, and those remaining would then go apply to a local rabbi. And that doesn't even mean that a rabbi would even accept them as their disciple. They'd go up and they'd say, Rabbi, I want to become one of your disciples. If the, the rabbi would ask you a whole bunch of questions, and if he thought you could do what he did, then he would say, follow me. But even some kids got weeded out there as well. But if the rabbi did say, follow me, you'd leave your father and mother and your synagogue and your village and your friends, and you live life with this rabbi learning to do exactly what he did. So Jesus comes along, and his disciples are working jobs. They are fishing, they're tax collecting, they're rejects. They are those the religious establishment would say had no business being in the work of ministry. Didn't have the right education, the right pedigree. And what does Jesus say to them? Follow me. Follow me. And they drop everything, and they follow him. They thought they were rejected, but they were not rejected. They were welcomed by God, just like Jesus says to all of us, follow me. That means we are all welcomed in. Second group of people that you see in Acts are these women, ladies, self for you. Acts 1 and 2, you see the message of the scriptures is proclaimed to women, not only in Acts, but in the life of Jesus. He had women learning from him. And that's huge because women during that area were considered unreliable and essentially worthless for anything other than making babies. Male babies. Male babies. And as much as our culture today likes to claim the Bible was so outdated, it's the scriptures and Christianity that move forward the value of equality between men and women. I mean, in Jesus' day, you could go out and you could kill someone. There could be a hundred women who saw it. But if no men did, you'd get off scot-free because women were unreliable witnesses. <laughs> it's so funny to me. I mean, you just got to, you, you want to murder somebody? You just got to plan it for the right time. Women, women, good. Ugh. Sweet. I mean, it's just crazy to me. After the resurrection, who was the first people that Jesus reveals himself to? Women. This is one of the reasons people believe that the scriptures were not made up, because if you're going to make something up, you wouldn't have women be the first people that Jesus reveals himself to. It'd be to men, because they're reliable witnesses, but they show themselves to women. And all four Gospels, the task of being witnesses to testify about the resurrection is also given to women. And it's given to them first. In Luke 24, the women come back from me, the first ones who see Jesus risen from the grave, and they tell the disciples, He's risen! In Luke 24, 11, it says, But these words seemed like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. 
Right, because they're women. Crazy, crazy. They go to the disciples. We saw him. We, we talked to him. She touched him. It was weird. But it's amazing. He's risen from the grave. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you're talking gibberish. And then Jesus shows up. And all the dudes have to eat it. It's so funny. It's so funny. Just goes to show you the culture. In Luke 10.39, there's a story about Martha who had a sister's name was Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he said. This is a euphemism for wanting and learning to be a disciple. Acts 22, verse 3, Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Those are words that he was a disciple of this man. In Luke uh, 8, 21, that Jesus says, My mother and brothers are those who put my words into practice, who listen and do what I say. That's language for being a disciple. It means that Jesus also calls women in who everyone else thought were worthless. He welcomes them in and calls them. The third group you see is these massive crowds in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples, and Peter goes out and preaches God's word, the good news, to this entire crowd. Well, who's in the crowd? Acts Acts 2, 9 through 11 says... Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, where they make all the pamphlets, Egypt and parts of Li- that's a joke by the way, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a crowd, but there's always some weirdo in a crowd. I mean, look around, you'll probably see a weirdo. If not, it's you. Okay, but. There's usually a word when it comes. But this is a thing that God is calling and welcoming to reach. It says that through the Holy Spirit, all these people heard Peter's message in their, in their own language. This means that God was welcoming everybody in that crowd. Everybody is welcome to come in. The fourth people you see are broken people. What I mean by that is throughout the scriptures in the book of Acts, people with broken bodies are welcomed and brought in. In Acts 3, this, you know, as the story continues through the book of Acts, you see this lame beggar asking for money because of his broken body. Peter will come along and end up healing this man because he understands that this man is not outside the kingdom of God. Why does Peter know this? Because years earlier, he's walking with Jesus, and they come across a man born blind. In John 9, 1 and 2, it says, As he passed by them, he, it's Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, in that day and age, that's a normal question. If something was wrong, you did something wrong, or your parents did something wrong. You are outside of God's love and care. You can't come into the temple. Look at your body. It's broken. If God really loved you, well, you wouldn't be broken. And that's the problem with religion. Religion always starts with you. Where the early church comes to stand, they understand that Christianity always starts with Jesus. Religion says there are good people and then there's bad people. Jesus says you're all terrible and then there's me. And that's, that's what Jesus says. Religion's goal is to always get things from God. You know, Christianity's goal is always Jesus. Religion sees suffering and hurting people as being punished by God. Oh, you're sick, you lost your job, what did you do wrong? Religion gives people nothing. And even today, every stupid guru from Deepak Chopra to Oprah to Dr. Phil, half the crazies on the Christian TV, will tell you if something is wrong in your life, you did something wrong. Now, sometimes it's true. Okay, sometimes it's true. You don't have money to make rent because you smoked it all. Yeah, that's your fault. Okay? You you live in a tent in the park because your best friend spells their name P-O-T. Okay, yeah, your fault, your fault. But you being born blind or your child getting sick, these people say if you did it better, if you thought the right thoughts, if you just had faith, well, then it would all be better. 
What you see in the book of Acts is those on the outside, who everybody thought were on the outside, were actually welcomed in. The fifth group of people you see are the Hellenists. In Acts chapter 6, the church has some internal problems because the Hellenist widows are not being taken care of as well as the Hebrew widows. Now, Hellenist Jews were Greek-speaking. They were Greek culturally. They didn't have families that stayed in the Holy Land when different countries came in and conquered Israel. They were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. Then they start to come back to Jerusalem, and a lot of people in Jerusalem look on them with great suspicion and distrust. Like a lot of people in Christianity today, or in the previous times of Christianity, will look around at other people and say, oh, you know, we don't get this. You've got tattoos, or you're not clean-shaven, or you like light beer and country music. You know, how can Jesus and those things go together? We just don't under- understand that. You know, what the early, which seen the early church is they recognize the calling on these seven young Hellenistic men to live and proclaim the good news of the gospel. And instead of putting the Jerusalem believers in charge of food distribution, they took these seven Hellenists and they put a large section of the church under their care. The first martyr in the book of Acts is a guy named Stephen who is a Hellenist Jew. The first guy that goes out of Jerusalem when persecution hits is this guy named Philip. And he goes out and proclaims the gospel. He's the first guy that goes out. Why? Because I think he had a soft spot in his heart for people on the outside because he was on the outside, and yet he realized how Jesus had welcomed him in. Which goes to the sixth group, which are the Samaritans. Uh, this is the first person, people that Philip goes to after he leaves Jerusalem. And it seems the farther and farther you get out in the book of Acts, the gospel goes further and further. People would say, oh, well, those people can't be saved. And yet you see they become redeemed. The Samaritans were descendants of those who gave up their country's birthright and they followed false gods. They compromised their faith. They mixed Judaism and paganism. You had this really weird, bizarre hybrid. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. It was ugly. Oftentimes it was brutal how they would treat one another. And if you asked a Jew if a Samaritan could ever be saved, they'd say, oh, oh no, a Samaritan could never be saved. And yet when Philip goes, they believe the good news of the gospel and they are saved. It's like inconceivable. How does that even happen? And the church in Jerusalem, they didn't even really believe it. So they send Peter and John to make sure it's actually true when someone's not pulling the leg. Did they really And they did. And once again, they saw God crossing all of these social boundaries because our roadblocks do not stop God and his grace. Which goes to the next person, which ends up actually becoming a group of people, which are Ethiopian eunuchs. Okay, So Donald talked about this three weeks ago. I write my messages again way in advance. So I didn't know what he was going to say, but I think this dovetails pretty well together because it shows that the kingdom expands and goes further to places we'd never assume. In Acts 8, God sends an angel to Philip to go down to Gaza. Now at that time, Gaza had been destroyed for about two years. So if you were a vacuum cleaner salesman, you would not go to Gaza because there would be nobody there to buy your vacuums. You just wouldn't go. So Philip has to be thinking, this is a bad strategy. Why would I go there? Like we all want to question God's plan when he asks us to do something we don't understand. It's like, buy a field? Really? Planting roots? Oh, I don't understand. You know, And we think because we don't get it, well, then God must be wrong. But God always loves to do these things. And God says, go there to Philip. And sometimes there has nothing to do with the trip, with there. It has everything to do with the trip while you're getting there. Like Philip going to Gaza. Philip never gets to Gaza. He never gets there. But he meets an Ethiopian along the way. The Ethiopian believes. He baptizes the Ethiopian. Philip disappears, goes somewhere else. It shows it's always God's plan and not ours. So Philip encounters this Ethiopian 
on the road to Gaza. And this is what it says. Acts 8.27 says, A court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. So this Ethiopian is what we would call a God-fearer. You see this throughout the New Testament. It refers to people who find the Jewish narrative of God and who he is very compelling. And so he goes to Jerusalem and he worships there. We're also told that somehow he'd acquired one of the scrolls of Isaiah. One of the scrolls of Isaiah is bulky, it is large, it is heavy, and it's almost impossible to get a hold of. But I'm assuming because he's in charge of all this woman's treasure, he could buy one. So he ended up picking one up. He's reading the scroll scroll where Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus. And all lo and behold, boom, that's when Philip shows up. Hey, what are you reading? Well, I'm reading this, and I don't understand it. So Philip explains to him, this is Jesus. This is what he's done. This is the amazingness of the good news of the gospel. And the Ethiopian believes. And I know that's not a big deal to you, but he's also a eunuch. And you probably don't think that's a big deal, but a, a eunuch is someone who had castrated themselves. I mean, usually they voluntarily did this. So it was like they go in, yeah, take care of business, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. In ancient Ethiopia, Nubian kings were considered offsprings of the sun god. And so they were considered too special to do any work, which left all the ruling to the queen. Kind of like a pride of lions, like the dude lion looks all cool with this big old mane, but all the women really do everything. Some dudes think that's a great job. I think that'd be horrible. Anyway, uh, the queen would have lots of servants. And if you were a man, so you wouldn't, uh, you know, go against her authority or have any threat to her in any way, you would get castrated. And as soon as you get castrated, certain hormones in your body would do crazy things in your body where you would look more feminine. Many eunuchs started to dress like women. Now, in church tradition, what we do is we like to clean this up a bit. Okay, so this is about a thousand years after. This is church tradition. So this is the Ethiopian eunuch in Philip. Okay, very manly, right? You're like, oh, is that a eunuch? Man, I could do that. I could pull off the eunuch. That's the man, right? Today, these are Ethiopian eunuchs today. That's what they look like. I know, totally different picture, right? Right? Totally, totally different. This man is the first full Gentile convert in the book of Acts. And he is so far outside would have been considered acceptable that it even staggers us to this day. Is it a he? Is it a she? Is it it? It's very derogatory. Even in this day, they're considered a third gender because nobody knew what to do with them. We don't know what Philip's reaction is when he starts, when he sees this guy and walks up to him. We know what his inclination would be. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, it says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And people say, well, that's the problem with the Old Testament. So, well, no, you've got to understand what's going on there. This is about death and life and light and dark and clean and unclean, about God's people living in his country in this certain way. This is the idea that God created us to be co-creators with him. And if you cut off the part of you that is a co-creator, then you're like a dead tree. You cannot participate with God. But this is the background of where all the scriptures are going, where the book of Acts is going, how Jesus comes and he fulfills the law. The law was a taskmaster that was supposed to lead us all to Jesus. None of us could keep the entirety of the law. None of us. And how we want to look at one person, oh, well, you didn't do this. You haven't kept the whole law. None of us have. Paul says in Galatians 3, 23 and 24, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The Ethiopian looks at Philip in Acts 8.36 and says, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? That's his question. Now, the answer used to be, well, you're a eunuch. You should have thought about that, and you can't change your mind now. 
dummy. You know, there's no one doing the, you know, you, you can't go back with that. What are you going to do? But in the good news of the gospel and what Jesus has done, Jesus fulfilled the law. What prevents me from being baptized? What's the answer? Nothing. Nothing. Jesus paid for your redemption. Jesus has called you to come to him. Jesus wants you to be his child. By the way, we're doing baptisms one month from today. And if you'd like to be baptized, sign up in the back. We'll get a hold of you, and we will baptize you as well. I mean, can you imagine what would happen today, though, with crazy Internet bloggers? What the law said! How dare you welcome this guy into the kingdom of God? This eunuch receives the grace of God and has equal partnership in the church with Philip, with Paul, with Peter, with you, with me. It's meant to make you feel a bit uncomfortable how Acts moves itself forward. And so then you get to the eighth person. You get to the Apostle Paul. I mean, how can you get worse and more far away from God than a eunuch? Well, how about a murderer of Christians? How about, you know, the Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, the Jeffrey Dahmer, or a Ted Bundy? How about a Saddam Hussein? Think about this. Paul goes and he lobbies for government approval to remove Christians from their home, to arrest them, to imprison them, and many times to exterminate them. What does that sound like? That sounds more like Adolf Hitler, doesn't it? Because that's what he did. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. What happens if one day you are standing in heaven and you look over to you know, your right and you see Mr. Hitler standing there? What if in those moments in his bunker when the world collapses around him, he cries out to Jesus? Would you say, how dare you, God? Or would you stand amazed at the grace, forgiveness, and love of God? When Paul comes to Jerusalem, this is probably three years after his conversion. This is what you read, Acts 9, 26 to 31. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, we called this message, The Grace That Welcomes Us. I think in the early church's part, that's sarcastic. Uh, but in God's part, it's very true, The Grace That Welcomes Us. Think is, of all the people to join the church, they had the hardest time with this one. Not women, not Hellenists, not eunuchs, but Paul. That's who they had the hardest time with. Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus, which means someone among them understood the good news enough to point out that it is Jesus who saves us. And don't get me wrong. Okay, Don't get me wrong here. It's Jesus comes in and saves us, and our lives become about him. It's not our little thing plus Jesus. It's just Jesus, he's the one who saves us. Verse 28, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Not the Hellenist follower of Jesus, but the Hellenists who didn't believe in Jesus, and they wanted to fight with Paul. And it says, But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, we spend a lot of time talking about the Apostle Paul in the Scriptures, and we should. Because even with all the hate against him, he never made his life about himself. He didn't walk around feeling like a victim. He moved forward in the grace of Christ to continue to proclaim the gospel. And I think what you'll see is all of these eight groups you talk about, they all did that. They all understood the call of Jesus. It wasn't their thing plus Jesus. It was just Jesus. And if you're a Christian who walks around and says, well, I'm a Christian, but you've got this thing that defines you before Jesus does, you're not really a follower of Jesus. It is Jesus who defines you over and above everything. So often we want to make our issue Jesus' issue. Jesus' issue for us is to proclaim Jesus. That's what it is. I mean, I love what happens to this eunuch. 
Because he goes back to his people, and he doesn't proclaim, I'm a eunuch Christian. He goes back and simply proclaims Jesus. Today in Ethiopia, 65% of Ethiopians claim to be Christians. The vast majority of that 65% are indigenous Ethiopians, not Western transplants, not missionaries. A true Ethiopian church, and they trace their origins back to that eunuch. To this very day, the church in Ethiopia traces themselves to Jesus first and then to this eunuch. Is that not stunning? Think about it. Because he's not like, I'm a eunuch Christian. He just says, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus first. You've got to throw your agenda away when it comes to Jesus. So you simply proclaim Jesus. I mean, the amazing thing is that God told Philip to go to that eunuch who's reading the scroll of Isaiah. You know what it says in Isaiah 56? It speaks about the coming Messiah, God's salvation, what he intends to do apart from the law. Just listen to this, okay? Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. It's like, when you love God, you're safe, you're secure. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who rest in me, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons or daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That's also a euphemism because God's funny. That's the same thing. This is the story of God reaching out and redeeming lost people. It's a story of a God who is teaching his people that the entire earth is his and all people are included in his story because it's his story. That's what he's teaching. We, all of us, we're all unqualified. We're all full of sin. We're all self-centered. And yet we are welcomed home because he is the one who changes us. He moves us and changes us into the people that we are supposed to be. And if he has welcomed us, how can we not welcome others like we have been welcomed? God comes. He reaches past our own boundaries and reaches us right where we are to work on us there. I mean, ask yourself this. What do we demand of others that God doesn't? You know, who do you have the hardest time with? What things do you judge the most? I love how one commentator says this. He says, God extends grace and love to those who are thirsty, not those who are worthy. Because none of us are worthy. He is the only one who is. And he offers us his love and grace and welcomes us in and intends for us to welcome others as well to speak of the goodness and the truth of the gospel that has rescued and saved us. I mean, we talk about communion every week because communion is the understanding of this. It's the place where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. Why? Why? So that we could be welcomed in. Everything that stood between us and God and us and each other is taken away at the cross of Christ. Everything that you want to judge everybody else about, everything that people want to judge you about, is all taken care of in the place of the cross. That God is welcomed, that God is redeemed, that God has loved us. Uh, the band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you guys as a today community to be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer for anything, you have any idea where you went? Oh, they're still walking around the corner. <laughs> Here comes Watch. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> oh, oh, second time laden, and we're already throwing him under the bus. <laughs> it's okay, you're welcome.
band's going to play. You're, you're more welcome to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back to pray with you. I mean, maybe, maybe you in your, in your life have a really hard time with certain people or certain things. They would love to pray with you about that. Maybe you feel like you've never been welcomed by the gracious arms of God. They would love to pray with you about that. I mean, our, our God is, has come and redeemed us. And our understanding of how we speak to one another is supposed to come out of our first understanding how he has welcomed us, how he has first loved us, how he has first sought us and blessed us. That, that is supposed to change who we are because of what he has done. So offering boxes inside one on the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We don't pass the plate. It's response to what he's done. There's food in the back. Grab something to eat. There's some donuts last service. I don't know if they're still there or not, but they were awesome. Uh, so, are they? <laughs> so uh, grab something to eat. Meet some other people. Maybe ask some of the questions that are in there with your gospel committee, with your friends, with your family. You know, and, and begin to understand you know, where are the places that you think that if somebody else saw this, you would, you would never be welcomed in. And yet you are, because of the grace of God. And what are the things that you look and judge and deem other people that they're not worthy? And how, do you, how, are they, how are you called to welcome them in as well? I mean, our God has welcomed us, which means he has sent us to also be those who welcome. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation to speak of the good news of the gospel. And Jesus will come, and he will change us into who he intends for us to be. Um, live live the way God calls us to. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would teach us as a people to live and love the way you call us to. That you would teach us to understand how we ourselves have been welcomed in by you. And that would inform how we interact with those around us. That we would understand the message of the cross that you have taken away everything that has stood between us and you. And by doing that, you've also taken away what separates us between each other. And that we would begin to live the lives that you call us into. Lives of great grace, great hope, great welcoming, Because we understand that we have first been welcomed. And that you would gain great glory as your people live in great joy. Because we understand now that we've been adopted in. That we have been wanted by you. And that sense of being wanted would translate into how we see everything else. Teach us to live the gospel and the trueness that you call us to. Raising you up above everything, especially ourselves and our own petty little agendas. And that you would be central to all that we do. Because you have first welcomed us. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.